the very disrespect of Russians for objective truth, indeed their disbelief in its existence, leads them to view all stated facts as instruments for furtherance of one ulterior purpose or another. There is good reason to suspect that this government is actually a conspiracy within a conspiracy, and I, for one, am reluctant to believe that Stalin himself receives anything like an objective picture of the outside world. Folks, welcome back to the second part of the Cold War series. Before we press on to the episode, though, I would like to give a mention of one other very interesting show. It's called That's So Second Millennium, and it is a very interesting show about all sorts of different ideas, um, and it's viewing them all through a Christian lens. It offers a very good balance between science and religion, often discussing scientific ideas, uh, something that we do here similarly, so they have a very aligned goal, and more than that, it brings on very interesting guests just about every episode, if not every episode, and it's definitely worth a check out. So go ahead and check out That's So Second Millennium. All right. So with that said, let's get into the episode at hand, the Cold War Part Dose. So much of the Cold War happens because of World War II, which happens a lot of what happened in World War I, or because of a lot of what happened in World War I. In all honesty, these three conflicts can be viewed as one large conflict with small breaks for rearmament and sometimes re-leadership. Viewed that way, we can see how impactful each and every decision made could be. B, how important each decision made by different leaderships in all different nations are so important. When you look at it at that kind of lens, you can see the tightrope that America and the West was balancing on was not a practice height of a foot, but instead it soared thousands of feet above the ground, and one tiny little misstep could spell total disaster and ruin for the two major nations on the West, Britain and England, or I'm sorry, Britain and America, um, but even more than that, it possibly even involved every nation that was involved in this cold, calculated game of chess. Following World War II, the United Nations was formed with five keystone members, the U.S., Britain, Soviet Union, China, and France, with, of course, the big three being U.S., Britain, and Russia. Although by this time, Roosevelt had died, so the actual big three, as they called it, um, Stalin, um, Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill, um, no longer existed as Truman was now the head of the U.S. And he was a rather unlikely leadership figure, um, but he made one of the greatest decisions, most important decisions that was made in maybe modern history. And before we continue, we need to look at that decision that he made, and is one that is rather highly criticized and endlessly important. I am speaking, of course, of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Many people argue that this bombing of these cities was completely uncalled for and totally unnecessary. This is very, very not true. Well, of course, it was a tragedy that so many people lost their lives. These were not actually the most devastating events for the Japanese. More people had died by far in the firebombing that took place in Tokyo. 
After the first bombing, Emperor Hirohito actually refused to meet with his deliberative body. Of course, he was the emperor, but many of the decisions made, especially when it comes to military, called for a meeting of the high general uh, of emperor, the high generals of the Empire of Japan. But this council would not meet. And around this time, the first ever broadcast that Hirohito did took place. And in that broadcast, in that television broadcast, he urged his people to bear the unbearable. When the U.S. was climbing up Japan from the south, the battles were not getting easier and easier, They were that, which would represent a collapsing of the will to fight. Instead, the opposition was getting more and more powerful and more and more resistance. America was pursuing the mainland resistance, was even more violent as America was climbing up the south. It was not getting less resistant. Moreover, telegrams by leading Japanese military officials can be found reading that they were willing to strap bombs into kids' backpacks. That way the children could kamikaze and jump under U.S. tanks. The letters read to the order of, if we are willing to spend some thousands of lives, we can stop this American invasion. Of course, that's not a direct quote, but that's what the telegrams essentially said, the communication that was happening. Then two things happened. One, two massive bombs were dropped, several orders of magnitude more powerful than any bomb before it. The second one was actually even as destructive as it could have been. It wasn't even as destructive as it could have been. As it missed its target by miles, regardless of the fact these bombs were dropped, and the resulting carnage cannot be ignored. The second thing, though, one that I would say is also very important, was a declaration of war on Japan read by Comrade Molotov. This is an event that played a huge role in Japan's decision to surrender. Days before this announcement, Japan had actually requested Russia's aid in fighting and defending off the Americans, a mission that they were willing to sacrifice thousands of their own people's lives for, even children's lives, to accomplish. Now this potential threat had turned on them, and Japan was ready, willing, and able to fight off invaders from the south, but both the south and the north? And now with this new weapon, well, days after telling his people to bear the unbearable, they were sending in terms of surrender to the Americans. For historians of this era, it is not surprising that Russia had attempted to invade Japan, as they had actually tried to do this years before. Of course, we had Teddy Roosevelt winning the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating the terms of peace between this Russo-Japanese war. It is not all that different to what just recently took place in our own history with the invasion of Ukraine. Regardless, the greatly important event that happened here was the birth of an entirely new type of weapon, the atomic bomb. And I would add, it's important to note that Americans were in fact willing to use these weapons of mass destruction, because they already had. And that is going to be an extremely important precedent in the future. Regardless, the greatly important event that happened was the invention of this entirely new weapon, the atomic bomb. Henceforward, any and all kind of all-out war would mean the immediate destruction of massive portions, if not the entire Earth. This would be an end result that was considered many times in the years to come, and fortunately, neither side was willing to pay that kind of price. Now that we have a huge portion of the Cold War at an extremely important setup, 
It's time for a 30,000-foot view of the war as a whole. We will go over that in this episode, hitting the major events. The next episode, we will go into greater depth of the really, really important events. Of course, we begin the end of World War II is where, that's where we're going to begin. This is in 1945. The bombing of Hiroshima is August 6th. Their surrender, August 14th. Now, on February 9th of 1946, something very important happens. Stalin delivers his hostile speech, is what it's called. As he delivers this speech, he blames essentially all war, but specifically the two world wars, on capitalism. Here is a snippet of what Comrade Stalin says. Perhaps catastrophic wars could be avoided if it were possible to periodically redistribute raw materials and markets among the respective countries in conformity with their economic weight by means of concerted and peaceful decisions. But this is impossible under the present capital conditions of the world economic development. Thus, as a result of the first crisis of this capitalistic system of world economy, the First World War broke out. And as a result, the second crisis, the second world war broke out. Now, of course, the speech is actually a rather long speech, and it went on much more. He talked about the state of the Soviet Union, about productions during the war. He highlighted the fact that they had endured the war and that socialist communism has now been proved viable through a trial by fire, as he calls it. But it is important to note the blame that he puts onto capitalism, saying that this style of economy promotes war. Shortly after this speech, another very famous speech is given the Iron Curtain or Sinews of Peace speech delivered by Winston Churchill. Then in 1947, containment takes place, as well as the Truman Doctrine. Containment was inspired by the Long Telegram, a passage of which I read from for the introduction of this episode. He said the main element, and that is, of course, um, George Kennan delivered this long telegram. Um, He was an attaché, I believe, to Moscow, and so he had been there for years, especially during World War II, and he kind of noticed the rise of Stalin and how dangerous Stalin was. Um, The long telegram is, in fact, a long telegram. Otherwise, I would love to read the entire thing because it is very, very interesting. But this is what George Kennan said. He said this about the communist reign. Uh, The main element of any United States policy towards the Soviet Union must be that of a long-term, patient but firm, and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies. We talked about this in the last episode. There was kind of two philosophies that took place. Stalin originally ran under this socialism in one, and then uh, his enemy, Leon Trotsky, uh, of whom he sends assassins to in Mexico to murder via pickaxe or ice axe to the back of the head. Uh, That is a true story. Leon Trotsky left Uh, the Soviet Union, after Comrade Stalin took power. He then goes to South America, and I believe he spends a large portion of the time in Mexico, which is Central America, technically. Um, He stays with an artist. Uh, He then has an affair with said artist's wife for many years, until the artist's friend is not happy, um, but he still stays there, I believe. And then 
several assassination attempts take place while he is uh, in Mexico with this friend of his. Uh, and he gets an ice pick to the back of the neck and like lower back of the head area. Uh, but he actually manages to survive it. Um, surprisingly, but not for very long. He ultimately succumbs. Um, so yeah, that is the lengths that our friend, Comrade Stalin, was willing to take. He sent a man across the world to murder someone with an ice pick. Anyways, it's because of that kind of tendencies, the reputation that Stalin had, that George Kennan recognized the dangers of this communist, socialist, Soviet style. And that's why he promoted this policy of containment, that it must be the policy towards the Soviet Union must be that of a long-term, patient, but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies. Because after World War II, after he gets elected, and what would most likely be assumed and definitely was a sham election, um, he stays in power forever, and then he begins his expansive tendencies. And that is exactly what it was. The goal of containment was, of course, to contain all communist sentiment and tendencies to that of Soviet Russia. And they feared the famed domino effect. If one nation fell, then it, like a marble or plastic rectangle with dots on it, it would crash into another and cascade and a cascade would happen. This cascade would spell disaster for Europe, especially in the very fragile post-war state that it was. This led, of course, to the Truman Doctrine, stating in essence that America would be remiss to not offer aid to Greece and defend its democracy. That's what the Truman Doctrine was. Now, another very big event happens in 1948. That is, of course, the Berlin Blockade. I'm not going to talk about this too much because it is going to be um, one of the things we talk about in the next episode in detail. Uh, but beginning in 1948 and stretching until May of 1949, um, the Berlin blockade is a very important event because for years a blockade like this would be considered an open act of aggression. Of course, years later, Robert, I'm sorry, uh, John F. Kennedy would do something very similar that the Russians did with the Berlin blockade when they did the blockade around Cuba. And that was another very tense situation because it's considered an act of war to blockade an area. Uh, so this Berlin blockade is a, considered an open act of aggression, something that would normally lead to war. And so Stalin did this not knowing necessarily what could happen if America was willing to go to all-out wars over something like this. Um, the Berlin blockade, of course, is happening because of the split of Germany, half of which is now communist, and half of it is a democracy. Um, so it's a very interesting, fragile situation. A wall, of course, is then constructed. Uh, would just arbitrarily kind of split down this road, so half families would be split off, all sorts of things like that. Um, we're going to talk about that more in uh, the next episode, though. But it's something that would normally lead to war, and very, very fortunately, in this specific instance, Normal times did not apply, so this normality of blockades leading to war did not take place. 1949 was a big year. Of course, we have the Berlin blockade we just talked about, but we also have the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This proposal was ratified and began to be formed. Of course, that is NATO. And then, uh, contrary to all belief and estimation, Russia tests its first nuclear bomb. 
Interestingly enough, it was extremely similar to America's own atomic bombs, of which took many, several years with the most brilliant minds available to create. This is five years ahead of America's estimations of when the atomics would be ready by the Russians. Most estimations, that, that was a generous estimation, most estimations actually placed it 10 years down the road because, ironically enough, um, Russia kind of murdered all of its scientists, all of its physicists, all of its engineers. They put them all in the gulags. And so then a very sinister man had to orchestrate some events that led to the acquisition of atomic weapons by Russia. This man is Leventry Beria. And I don't know about you guys, but to me, that just seems like a very sinister name, Leventry Beria. Sounds like a Bond villain. Probably too inappropriate for a Bond villain because this man almost murdered as many people as the Man of Steel himself. Uh, he is known for a 22,000-person slaughter um, early on in his career. Um, he is one of the people that designed the sloped floors in the Lubyanka. A problem arose when the bombs went off in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. As I just said, the Russians had murdered or thrown into work camps all of their physicists that would be required for this. So Leventry Beria had to go to the gulags and find weapons. He had to find these tools, these people that could design these weapons. He ended up doing that, but the physicists were behind. They didn't have the time or the resources to devote like America did. So, there was, of course, the McCarthyism movement in America. Um, the Red Scare, it's called, um, as, a, as overlapping periods of time. The Red Scare, they really led to McCarthyism. But there were people in America who were communist sympathetic. And we had some of those people that were able to give the research done by the Manhattan Project to the Russians. And that's why the nuclear weapons that were created by the Russians resembled so closely the bombings in Nagasaki because it actually pretty much was the exact same bomb uh, because the plans for it were given to the Russians um, because of Leventry Beria's efforts, his positioning of spies in America, if you will. And now moving on, but just a little bit, we of course have... Something else very important happens in 1949, and October 1st, uh, specifically communist Mao Zedong takes control and establishes the People's Republic of China. Ironic that he chose that name for a communist nation, but there's propaganda for you. And now moving on, the Korean War begins. Uh, Truman approves something very important. He approves the testing and more specifically development for a hydrogen bomb, something that is several orders of magnitude even more powerful than an atomic bomb. So this is a new level of atomics um, that could just easily lead to the annihilation of the entire world um, with its power. Uh, McCarthyism really begins here, really takes off in February of 1950, um, and the witch hunt of the modern world, otherwise known as the communist hunt, um, and many loyalty tests. I said uh, the Korean War also begins here. And of course, Stalin supports the North Koreans, and the South Koreans are supported by the Americans. Um, so many of the Koreans battle and war with 
uh, Soviet weapons. This is a very important thing because over the Korean War and the many blunders that happened in the battle for simply the 38th parallel because that's where the war begins and the war ends at the 38th parallel. No progress is made whatsoever by either sides and Truman uh, fires General MacArthur um, because of many of the wild and ludicrous things that he did during that war. Um, He... Battles with China happened here uh, because he didn't believe that the Chinese would really get involved. Uh, so some serious blunders were made on that area. Um, the Chinese did get involved to some degree, not massively, but enough that it undid all of the progress that America made uh, in that war, leading it back to simply, again, the 38th parallel. Um, so because of that, Truman fires MacArthur, and he did some very insubordinate things that... So it was a very justified release of duty. Um, but then 1951, nothing extremely important happens here other than uh, MacArthur's fired. Uh, the nuclear arms race really begins in 1953, uh, a year after Britain makes their first atomic bomb. Um, and then in 1953, the Korean War ends, and we're moving on into 1954, uh, where the KGB is established officially, so they s- switch from the Cheka to kind of a secret police and then to the KGB. Uh, and then later on it would become the NKVD, if I'm not mistaken. Um, now, in July of that year, um, Vietnam is split on their 17th parallel uh, between North and South, communists versus uh potential democracy. Another very interesting thing happens that's not extremely involved, but I've been to this place before, and that is Guatemala. Uh, The CIA helps overthrow uh, regimes in Iran and Guatemala, and Guatemala is still suffering from those kind of overthrows that happen. Guatemala has an extremely interesting history, um, but we're not going to get into it too much. In 1956, the USSR... does a lot of things. They uh, give military aid to Afghanistan, as well as um, they suppress some people in Poland and Poznan. Um, a rebellion is put down in communist Hungary. Uh, the Suez Crisis begins uh, with the Israelis. Um, a lot of just different stuff happens. But in 1957, we have some very important events um, that just caused absolute deluge of fear in America. That is, of course, the first ICBM is launched, and Sputnik 1 and 2 are launched into orbit. Uh, Sputnik 2, of course, I believe has the dog that was uh, killed in space, but launched. um, After that year, America really scrambled to catch up, and in 1958, the Explorer was launched. Um, NASA begins its Mercury project um, using a very advanced style of rockets. Now, we have a very interesting thing. Stalin dies in the time period that we just talked about, and Khrushchev uh, takes over. He takes um, power from the Russians, and some very, very, very important things happen under Khrushchev's reign. He very drastically peels back the layers of fear that had been painted on to the people of Russia, Uh, We find out throughout history and throughout time, uh, the end of Russia, the end of the Soviet Union happens when fear begins to abate from people's hearts because fear is absolutely required to maintain the 
power that communists have over a people. I talked about this in the last episode, or um, the last episode we did on um, the Cold War. Animal Farm is just the most accurate and most beautifully descriptive process for communist risings. You can see the slow progression where the people were excited about the revolution, and we talked about this because of the vanguard party that Lenin um, established. They sow revolution in people's hearts, but when that revolution dies, something has to be there to sweep them back up, whether it's another wave of revolution, but after a while there can only be so many revolutions, and then fear is required. Fear must be an essential purpose, an essential point to communists because you just have to make them afraid of consequences of speaking out. So with Khrushchev, he delivers his speech and in that speech, he just defames Comrade Stalin, this glorious, glorious protector of the freedom of the workers. He destroys him. He tells everybody all of this. It's a, it's actually a secret speech, so he doesn't tell it to the masses, but he tells it to the Politburo. He gives this defamation speech of who Comrade Stalin really was, all of the things that he did. And eventually, of course, that leaks out to the public. Many people don't believe them, but some of the people who Comrade Stalin put into the gulags wept over his death and didn't believe it and still had this kind of sycophantic love for him even after his true intentions and his true dealings was made known. They still had this love for this character who is just evil beyond recognition. And that's part of the cult that was formed around him, this cult of personality we talked about when he was rising up and known as Koba before he changed his name to Stalin. Um, so even after his what he did was made public and made known to people, people still didn't believe it, and they still had this weird attraction to who he was. But Comrade Khrushchev... Um, did a whole lot to dismantle that kind of fear, even though he himself murdered many thousands of people. He was not a good man. He was not a better leader by any stretch of the imagination than Stalin was. But he did, well, he was a better leader because of what he did, because of that dismantling of ideas. And many people in America had great hopes because of what he did and the great reforms that he did. Um, anyways... He, dis, uh, he demands the withdrawal of troops from Berlin as well. That would be U.S. troops and Western troops. And there's a very interesting battle that took place there with tanks pointed at each other that fell along this line. Um, and it was a very interesting tactile withdrawal. By 10 meters at a time, an American tank would slide back, and then 10 meters, uh, our USSR tank would slide back, and it went like that for hours and hours until finally all of the tanks managed to leave at a stalemate. Um, now, uh, Khrushchev also visits the United States and was very remiss when he was not allowed to visit Disneyland. Um, he was taken, eventually he was actually taken to uh, Camp David and had an amazing time when the Paris summit was supposed to happen. Um, unfortunately, around this time as well, um, Gary F. Powers was destroyed in the sky and he crashed into Russia. And so that made the Paris summit ultimately fail because we had been running Americans as a response to the Sputnik 
because uh, we didn't have the technology to do that, we developed the U-2 spy planes. And these spy planes ran many missions over the USSR, photographing um, their armaments, photographing their weapons bases, all sorts of things like that, gaining very important intelligence. And that was our response to the Sputnik. Um, now, there was a final... This was supposed to be the very last mission run because of the Paris summit that was coming up where there was going to be some great breakthrough with the USSR. Khrushchev had very high hopes for this. Um, our current president, um, Ike, had very high hopes for this. Um, but as a longtime military man, he was offered one last chance for the U.S. to fly over Russia and gain valuable intelligence, and he took it. And it was that mission that a SAM surface-to-air missile struck down Gary Powers, Francis Gary Powers, uh, his plane. And that he was not able to self-destruct the plane. And he wasn't able to uh, do the required thing of committing suicide. And he was captured. And that kind of left a very bitter taste and the Paris summit fell apart. Now, in 1959, another very important thing happens, and we're going to wrap up closely after this. Cuba takes uh, a fall, the domino effect, if one might say it's that, and it was taken over by Fidel Castro, and after that, there was a whole slew of very um, twisty, windy scenarios that take place. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, the Bay of Pigs invasion, um, many, many, many different things. Um, right after that, the construction of the actual Berlin Wall takes place. It's not just um, a division of ideology. An actual wall is then built. Uh, the Berlin blockade is long over, but replaced by the wall instead. Um, but Fidel Castro takes power in Cuba and very quickly goes over to alliance with Russia. And this was a huge thing because now we have communists right on our doorstep. Um, before, we weren't very concerned about missiles because they didn't quite have the range to penetrate our very thick blue walls that took place on either side of America, of course, the two oceans. But now, a missile could easily strike Florida from Cuba, even D.C., when it gets to that. So that's where the Cuban Missile Crisis really, really takes place. It happens because if missiles could get to Cuba, then America could possibly be bombed directly. Of course, Cuba did not have the ability to design these bombs themselves, but because they fell into the hands of the Russians, Russians could very easily send munitions to them. Uh, that's when, of course, a blockade of Cuba takes place, which we talked about in the beginning of this episode, and a whole slew of very bad things happens. Um, shortly after that, the atomic bombs are developed by China, and many, many more. Apollo 11 lands on the moon in 1969. Uh, President Nixon takes power after Robert, or I'm sorry, John F. Kennedy is assassinated, and then we're just gonna, we're gonna end it right there, I think. We have covered a whole lot of uh, topics right there. We kind of blew through things at the end. Um, in 1989, I'm sorry, I'm gonna continue, the Berlin Wall is demolished, um, and that's when a very sharp decline of the Soviet Empire takes place. Ultimately, the Cold War is officially declared over 
1991 um, with the end of the Soviet Union and Germany being reunited the year previous. Um, A whole lot happens after the Cuban Missile Crisis. A whole lot of very interesting things happen. We didn't really get into the Vietnam War a whole lot, but we are going to talk about that a whole lot in the next episode. Um, So with that, we're going to end it there. Um, We're going to talk... I'm considering adding an extra episode into the series uh, just about the characters, the cast of the Cold War. We have Reagan, Nixon, Robert, or John F. Kennedy, a little bit of Robert F. Kennedy. I don't know why I keep saying Robert Kennedy. But then we have Gorbachev, we have Khrushchev, we have Stalin. We talked about Stalin and Lenin a lot. But we have many other people like Leventry Beria that is worth talking about just so we can... When we understand the characters and the cast of this play, this worldwide stage, it's very important to to know who we're dealing with because it, it shows the ideologies that take place here. It shows the importance of these people because they're the ones making the decisions. And when we can see it in that lens, we can see just how important this war is. Um, so... We're going to end it there, though. We're going to end it right there. I'm not going to talk anymore, I promise. Um, Just a few closing statements. The Cold War is an extremely important era of history. It's one that we are well served to understand um, because of the things that we are dealing with now happened back then as well. Um, So history repeats itself. We know this. So when we can look at the historical blunders of the past, we can see and maybe even predict to some degree the blunders that we ourselves might come across. When we can get a historical lens of extremely similar things, we can make better decisions and we can inform people and we can, like I said, make better decisions. We can correct errors that take place and we can prevent these same blunders from happening over and over and over again if we become students of history. Um, So, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed it. This episode is thus concluded, so go learn something new, go learn something real. In the meantime, and next week, I'll be back with some more Food for Thought.